Welcome everybody back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit. The po- Let me start that over. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back everybody. With- <laughs> 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 oh my God. Hello everybody. It's episode 300 of Bourbon Pursuit. The podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's podcast, talking about young whiskey and if it's good or it's bad, here's your weekly bourbon news update. So there isn't really much happening in the bourbon world, so I'm going to give you an update on what's happening in our world. We've taken two weeks off from doing barrel selections, but that's about to change really soon. Next week, we're going to be back at Four Roses selecting two barrels. Then two weeks later, we're going to be at New Riff selecting a barrel there, followed by another barrel pick at Four Roses the week after that. And then we'll be doing Ezra Brooks and Rebel Yell Barrel selections. We are still on track to be selecting 40 barrels this year. And if there's a small distillery that we should have our radar on for doing these barrel selections, send us an email to barrelclub at bourbonpursuit.com. And make sure you check out the club at bourbonpursuit.com and click on the Barrel Club link for all the information on how to join and how you can help support this podcast. I know many people have been wondering, when will Pursuit United be ready again? I'm excited to say that we have all of the barrels secured that we need for our next batch. This next run will be four times as large as the first, targeting a little bit north of 8,000 bottles. I've also completed one of the most difficult tasks that I don't envy for any distillery out there, which is creating a 10-year plan. Trying to look in that crystal ball and figure out, well, what do we actually need to grow? And I'm even more excited to say that We've now secured all the barrels that we will need for the next four years while we let our new make come of age. And speaking of new make, we've also entered into another new make agreement, which will lock in all three components we need to grow Pursuit United. We are putting down 860 barrels of new make this year, and we'll be scaling that to around 1100 in the next few years. So in 2026, you're gonna see the first major scale point of Pursuit United moving from around 18,000 bottles per year to 90,000. Now that might sound like a lot, but we're actually holding a lot of barrels back. So Pursuit United will eventually be a six-year-old product with all three of those components and ultimately hitting our biggest scale point of 200,000 bottles per year in 2031. It's crazy to think that we have a 10-year product roadmap, but we're so excited with the feedback that we've got from the initial launch that we want to grow this thing. And we hope that you continue to drink lots of bourbon here for the next 10 years. And moving on to bourbon release news. The spring 2021 release of the Old Fitzgerald Bottled and Bond Decanters will start making its way out very soon. It's comprised of barrels that were produced in the spring of 2013 and bottled in the spring of 2021, making them 8 years old. This edition will be available with a suggested retail price of around $85. In today's podcast, myself, Ryan, and Fred, we sit down and we discuss young whiskey. And is it a good thing or a bad thing? There's all sorts of things to examine because in this ever-changing landscape of losing age statements, craft distillers putting out amazing products at young ages, and bourbon drinkers continually looking for something new. Is the age of the whiskey less important now than ever? With that, enjoy today's podcast. Now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Mike Dalmasso. Above the Char idea. How much bourbon do you drink on a day on average? What is acceptable? I get everything in moderation, but too poor. It's three to four ounces a day. Is that too much? That kind of thing. I'd like to know. By the way, Mike writes me on fredminnick.com. And, you know, Mike, this is a question... I'm internally struggling with all the time. Like, uh, first of all, there is like work consumption for me. People actually pay uh, to sip whiskey with me. I get booked all the time for private tastings uh, from companies like uh, Amazon, Google, AT&T. And believe me, I ain't complaining. I love it. But it's when I get off work, when I'm not doing work tastings, that's when I find myself kind of like, you know, maybe I shouldn't have that second bourbon or that third bourbon or that fourth bourbon. In fact, I've talked about this in uh, episodes past where I have a, I have, you know, my big issue is TV bourbon. 
So I will have like a TV series that I'm in love with, and I will pour myself some uh, good everyday bourbon, like Rare Breed or Old Forester 1920, or I'll dip into some of my old stashes of barrel picks from uh, a few years ago, and I'll just sit there and I'll watch, um, I'll watch whatever series I'm watching. One pour becomes two, becomes three, becomes maybe four, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe, maybe this fifth pour ain't so bad. You know, and so like it, it is an internal, you know, dialogue all the time. Uh, but I do force myself to take off days, and I am all about drinking responsibly. So I, I will say this: I will say this. We are in a hobby that can damage you if you drink too much of it. So be cognizant of that. Be very, very cognizant of that because it has a physiological impact on you. So you know, follow the. FDA guidelines as best as you can. And that's that's the best I can give you because, you know, I do this for a living and what I you know, my my levels are not a good barometer of what what you should be doing. But that's this week's above the char. If you're like Mike and you have an idea for above the char, make sure you hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Just click the contact button and hit me up with your idea. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And we're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Today we're analyzing, it's a trend in bourbon, I guess we could say, when we had a, a glut era, when a lot of us got used to what, $65 Lasher Craig 18 on the shelves. And now we also are starting to get into a new era of craft whiskey that is very, very good at a very much younger age in the three to five, six year sort of span because there's a lot of experimentation, a lot of different things. So today we're going to start looking at is young whiskey just as good as older whiskey? So let's go ahead and we'll kind of, uh, we'll dive into it a little bit. I know that for myself personally, you know, I am, I, I do tend to lean towards, you know, eight, 12, whatever years old. And I will say mm -hmm. that there is a time when... Well, who doesn't? <laughs> I know, I know. But there is there is a point where it does get too old. I mean, we've talked about it previous at length before about, you know, older Parkers and some other 24, 27-year sort of Heaven Hill products. And again, look, sometimes it's got a little mustiness taste to it, and I'm not a biggest fan of it. But I do kind of kind of gear towards that way. I mean, preference-wise, Ryan, like, where, where do you sit in that sort of spectrum? You know, for me, it's always been probably seven to like 14, 15 kind of. I mean, I like to keep my tannins in check. I mean, for whiskey, for me, I like the fruitier, uh, fruitier notes. I like more of the 
dessert type notes when you start getting too much like oak and smokiness and woodiness and all that stuff i kind of dislike it that's just me personally and that's what i love about these newer younger whiskeys is like you get so much vibrant fruit flavor citrusy like Mm -hmm. there's so much like like loud and vibrant flavors that are just so unique that you don't get that are kind of mellowed out as whiskey turns like eight to 12 yes they're going to be much more smoother and you know more caramel vanilla and easier on the palate but there's just like it's just mellow whereas some of these younger newer stuff coming out is like so vibrant and i really enjoy them yeah yeah the those older whiskeys you know they've been in the barrel you know for and pulled when the distiller thought they were right um you know a lot of the younger ones are pulled and bottled for economic reasons there's a really great history to this like anytime there is a a distillery starts you know they have to make money you know they have to make money and so they put whiskey out when it's quite a quite a bit young in comparison to what's on the market and we saw that especially after after prohibition you'll see you know you'll see uh bottles out there they'll say they're 18 months old um which obviously is a year and a half uh, but 18 months sounds better. And so they would put stuff out there like that, or they would blend them. They would come out with like blends of straights or blend them with neutral grain spirit. And um, and so a lot of times we see these, we see these new whiskeys come out, and yes, they're young. These are not necessarily out there because that's when the distiller wants to put them out there. They need to get some cash in the bank. And that's not everybody can wait four years or six years uh, to get something out there. And and that's what a lot of this is. And so, you know, sometimes when we talk about these younger whiskeys, it is, um, you know, I I do think it's important to put that into perspective that it's an economic decision sometimes and not necessarily um, a a product quality one. But that also kind of goes back into, uh, we've heard this argument from craft brands before that when they put out a, if somebody else puts out a product that is inferior because it's too young, it hurts the category as a whole. And they say that, I mean, we've all, we've all been burned by craft whiskey before. We all have. I don't think there's anybody that hasn't, but anybody that does get burned one time, you always have this thought in the back of your head. Like, I don't know if I want to risk $60 on this or 70 or 80, whatever it's going to be. That stigma sticks no matter what. And so it, it it has an adverse effect when that does happen. Well, and that's why, you know, the whiskey's got to transcend. And uh, I look at brands like Woodenville. Uh, Woodenville is, you know, it's no longer an independently owned uh, facility. But, you know, when they were, uh, when they didn't have, um, you know, who's their owner? Moe Hennessy. Moe, yeah. When, when Moe Hennessy didn't own them, they were putting out really good bourbon at very young. Um, I look at, you know, Spirits of French Lick. He's, uh, you know, Alan Bishop is doing very different stuff with his uh, distilling techniques. He's doing four grains and he's distilling at low entry proof. And, you know, you can taste the grain. It's young. You can taste the grain, but it's not an adverse reaction to me. I like that flavor. I like that kind of like OD flavor. But I think there are there are some uh, young whiskeys that really transcend the uh, craft category, and a lot of times when you look at like if you taste a if you taste batch one of a craft product, just know buckle up you're getting yourself in for a run. <laughs> it's their first batch, and but it, like it, that buckle up. <laughs> it's kind of like watching. It's kind of like a, a Broadway show. You know, if you go there for, you know, but what what's, it, it's not when they're at their actual opening, it's kind of like their preview. If you go and watch the preview, you're going to see some mistakes. It's not going to be absolute. Uh, the the first, I was, I want to say the first four to six batches from a craft distillery, that's their preview of who they are and what they're becoming. You're basically, you're, you're buying it to support them. And that's, and that's why the, they really should focus on their local market versus going out national first. But young whiskeys, you know, can be very flavorful. And I do think rye whiskey is much more tasty young yes. than, than bourbon is. I think bourbon, uh, bourbon can come off musty, it can come off over corny, it can come off a lot of different ways. 
and wheat whiskey, forget about it. Do not put out a young wheat whiskey. There is no way that you can make that thing um, taste halfway decent if it's under three years old. And if you have, it's a friggin' miracle. I mean, wheat whiskey is is very difficult to you know do in the first place. But but young rye whiskey stands a chance. And I think Peerless is one of the greatest examples of that. Their three year old rye, uh, you know, when I was with Whiskey Advocate, basically was the best rye that year. You know, I mean, that was, they came in, I think, number 15 or 17 on the, on the best whiskeys of the year that year. And that rye to this day is, a, is a drinker for me. I like, that's what I, I go out and I buy that three year old rye. I love it. It's great. And they're also getting a little bit older too now. So you get a little they more are. age on it, a little bit better. And you bring up a good point because it is a gamble. It's a gamble for craft anything these days because the one thing that bigger distilleries they have is they have inventory, they've got scale, and they've got time on their side. Yes. So they know that if they have a bad batch, it's fine. We're going to be okay. We've got another million barrels back here to worry about. But a craft distiller, they want to come on the scene and they want to run their first 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 barrels, and you know these you're not going to know what it's going to be like for the next few years so you're continually just monitoring it and but you're also producing and so who knows at what point you know you either messed up in the process or if you knew what you were doing when you tasted the distillate when it was coming off so it's a big gamble to try to figure out what what's going to happen in craft for that particular reason too yeah and the the bigger boys have economies of scale too at their you know at their uh fingertips i mean yeah they can produce fantastic whiskey and at such a low cost, I mean, you know, their cost of goods sold is probably sub two hundred dollars, um, probably maybe even less. So, you know, whereas a craft distillery is probably more four or five hundred, six hundred bucks, you know, to make a make that barrel, and so that's going to be reflective on the shelf, you know, to the consumer. But you know, there there are some younger whiskeys that you know a lot of craft guys came out, you know, the past five to six years, and Kenny and I have sampled a lot, and we we have that, you know, Kentucky eight eight to 12 year buys to ourselves and you know you're hesitant to to appreciate and enjoy these but there have been you know some that just blow your blow you away and just the the explosion of new different flavors you know kentucky bourbon mm-hmm. kind of has you know there's d- differences between each distillery but also kind of has like you know this similar profile throughout in which craft distilleries they kind of blow that wide open and give you your, your palate something new and interesting while it might not be that vanilla caramel balm that you're used to from, you know, your favorite Kentucky bourbon distillery, but there's going to be some fruity, some honey, some citrus, some interesting notes that you can really taste the distillate, you know, coming off versus more of the barrel notes. And that's what I enjoy about experimenting with these younger whiskeys. One of the best things that happened to the craft distillery movement was that Dickel opened up into the, into the wholesale game. And while Diageo would never confirm that, we all know Dickel has a lot of stuff that's going into the market and being bottled by other people. Once that started going out into the market labeled as as bourbon, that basically started to give people a more mainstream uh, uh, flavor profile that was far outside the Kentucky bourbon profile. And people started like, you know, who were kind of new to the game would maybe buy something, you know, that they thought was uh, Kentucky bourbon and it wasn't. It was just, you know, it was, it was Dickel. And then they would uh, buy something like Hudson, like, uh, you know, everyone has different opinions about Hudson, but you would have, it would be New York bourbon and they would be like, you would have Hudson, you would have a Tennessee bourbon, and then you would have like Kentucky bourbon and you had this range of, of flavors. And so if somebody started out their like bourbon, you know, tasting life with the, with those three categories, you know, they would have a much more open mind than people who were basically brought up on Kentucky bourbon. That's where I have seen the the greatest opportunities for uh, for craft distillers is to connect with people who are outside of that Kentucky bourbon bubble. And you have seen people get excited about bourbons that are not made in uh, Kentucky. And even more so, rise and single malts. And I think that what some of the craft distillers did between the years 2010 and 2016 started getting, you know, the, the big brands started, you know, mimicking that, like using multiple grains. I remember when Jim Beam, uh, started like, uh, coming out with a uh, try to kill and rice and they, you know, they were basically tracking 
what the small distillers were doing uh, before they would even release stuff. And so they were laying stuff down at the same time. So those craft distillers have been very innovative and have influenced what the big brands have done. And we are starting to see, we are starting to see these craft distillers actually have whiskey that can compete with um, the Kentucky bourbons in competition. It's funny you mentioned like Jim Beam. I think Knob Creek comes out, came out with like what the quarter oak or something where they, right. you know, tried the 15 the craft, barrel, craft distillers, you know, were because of cost and whatnot, were using the 15, 25 barrel, gallon barrels. And then, you know, everybody would make fun of them. But then, you know, Knob Creek was like, hey, we're going to take our barrels and put them into those smaller barrels, see what happens. You know, we're going to take a playbook out of the, the craft distilleries. But, there is, you know, outside of Kentucky, you know, everybody here is so enthralled with bourbon. They've got their bourbon blinders on. They're like so focused. But for craft distillers, you know, outside of this state, you know, there, there's a huge opportunity because there's a shortage still kind of, uh, even with the big boys, you know, stuff that's eight to 12 years. They just, there's not enough to meet the demand elsewhere, you know, at, throughout the whole country. So there's a, a niche for craft distillers to find those new, you know, those new uh, consumers that are interested in whiskey, but they can't get the access to, you know, the older Kentucky stuff that's still waiting to come of age. So there's a big opportunity there. And, you know, there's some that are pr producing some fantastic stuff. And some of them too have an international strategy that's real interesting. And, you know, you've seen them like be in places like Poland and do really well in Poland. Like I remember uh, Catoctin Creek, it was one which, you know, for some reason I've been bringing them up a lot lately, but uh, they, they were selling a lot in, in Europe. And, you know, and so the, the idea of what whiskey is, we have a very particular thought. Uh, if you come from the Kentucky bourbon tree, but you go outside in the, to the rest of the world and you're going to start seeing people uh, have an expectation for different flavors. And indeed, the bourbon from Kentucky can sometimes be too sweet for folks who cut their uh, whiskey tooth on Isla Scotch, for example. So right. it's a very different world, you know, if you, when you get outside of the Kentucky bourbon bubble and the craft whiskey is out there for people. Now, the, the, the question of like, where does young whiskey fit in this, in this conversation? I think that young whiskey has its place. Now, if we can dismiss price points for a second and just to analyze it from a quality perspective, there are some things you look for in in young whiskey. If it if if you are getting that uh, kind of like a green like wood note, so you get in there and it just like extracts all the moisture from the sides of your palate, like it's so bitter, it's like it's green. It you know that's not good and is probably going to turn into something bad the longer it's in the barrel. If you are getting like a uh, a musty corn note, that's not good. The barrel's not going to improve that. But if you are getting something that's like a corn on the cob, that corn on the cob note may turn into cornbread in a few years. If you are getting something that is a uh, like a like a charcoaly kind of like uh, smokiness, you're just getting that very first por portion of that charred inside of the barrel. And that later could turn into something beautiful like, like caramel. So what I love about the younger whiskeys is that it's, a, it's an opportunity for you as the whiskey taster to begin the evolution of a distillery. So you are tasting the beginning of a distillery's evolution. And believe me, I've tasted some that was between a, a dead cat and burnt plastic. And you're like... <laughs> I don't know if I want to be here to I'm, see the I'm, full I'm story. I'm not on that train. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, you, but you bring up a good point because, you know, we've all, you've and you've talked about each bourbon brand is like a sports team, you know, to people. And it, it is fun, you know, when you find a good craft whiskey and you get to be part of that experience with the brand. You know, you jump on, you're like, what can I get? What releases? I'm starting to follow them on social media. You know, it, it, you kind of build that loyalty because you, and you kind of feel like, I'm one of the first, you know, mm -hmm. to find this and I'm growing with them, you know, and that's, that's a unique experience you can get with a craft whiskey versus the big brands who they got plenty of fans. They're shooting away at every moment they can. Yeah. It's a very different, it's a very different relationship too with, with the consumers, you know, with, uh, with, with the big brands, I, you know, they're sometimes they, they forget about you but with those little brands, you know, tiny ones, you know, 
I mean, they hang on to your every word as a consumer. They love you. They want to hear your story. They want you to, they want you to, you know, share your posts about them. They'll reshare them. I mean, there's a very different dynamic between the likes of someone like uh, uh, a Peerless or a Cedar Ridge in Iowa uh, than, say, you know, Jim Beam, which does a great job, but you know, they're have kajillions of fans and they can't have that same kind of relationship yeah. as uh as the smaller brands i relate it to like wineries if you go on wine tours you know you can go to napa and go on like mondavi's or you know the big brands and i mean they're all fine but it's a factory tour you know you're sure. you're in and out let's get you in and out as fast as possible make it a little cool but but if you go to like these mom and pop wineries you're meeting you know the whatever you call it the purveyor not purveyor is that the what's the the vineyard well, uh, not the vineyard, the the guy that's running winemaker. it, the winemaker and the the founders. Vintner? Yeah, whatever. Vintner. Yeah, I think Vintner is the word he's looking for, maybe. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but you're sitting having drinks with them. They're asking where you're from. They're talking to you, having conversations. You know, it's a real intimate experience, and that's what you kind of get with these smaller brands. Yeah, and, you know, and, and sadly, in this in this world of of bourbon where we all have phones and you know we can all get a little bit uh sarcastic you know and all sometimes there'll be a, a piece of equipment in a room that people like will post on social media and be like wow look at that it's like a, a site there's still the size of a milk jug or something like that you know and, and so there are some unfortunate things that can come from that uh from a small distiller opening up but I I really do um I really do like the the passion that they put into it and and you and you see some some cool things like uh MB Roland in Western Kentucky you know they put out they put out young whiskey every every year and I think every release is different but they have put their own stamp on it like you know they have their dark fire uh their dark fire technique that they use uh they're distilling hemp with uh one of their bourbon recipes and it comes off like peanut butter yeah, so there's a there there's a lot of things that these smaller distillers that are do that are actually trying to compensate for the fact that they do have to come out young. They're like, yeah, we do have to be young, but by the way, here's a two year old, three year old Kings uh, County uh, New York bourbon that's peated. Enjoy. So that type of innovation to compensate for the fact that they know they have to come out young. Um, has had a huge impact on the industry. And it gives us uh, something else to talk about too. I think craft whiskey does push the envelope of what innovation is in the industry because yeah. they are the ones that have to create an angle. They have to be different than the big guys. I mean, the big guys, they churn and burn. They're putting out a thousand barrels a day and it's ISC number four, same exact mash bill. Let's go. Like, let's keep this train moving along. Mm-hmm. The craft distillers, they have to find something different. And this is why I think that craft whiskey and even younger whiskey still has a role in here today because we've tasted a lot of whiskey that either goes in the barrel at a at a lower entry proof. They use different types of wood. They use different types. Uh, it's not always Grand ISC. They, they use um, heirloom corn. They use, ty- you know, whatever corn they get from their farmer that's, you know, right down the road from, old, you know, old Jim over there. I mean, they just have those relationships. And every single one of those components lead into something that makes the whiskey different or unique. And it's not something that, I mean, don't get me wrong, the big boys, they make great whiskey. But for them to say like, oh, yes, we all get it from our local farmer here just down the street. No, they they truck it in from wherever they can <laughs> well, get it. Well, they do, except the, that local farmer expands all in Kentucky <laughs> and supplies every single one of those distilleries exactly. in, inside Kentucky. So there's, you know, not much unique about that. Yeah, exactly. So you've got to, you've got to have something that's different and something sort of breaks that mold that makes you want to get those different flavors, those different flavor profiles out of it. Now, I personally like, I know Fred, we've talked about it before. Like you love the grain character, that grain note. I still like a little bit more barrel influence mm-hmm. when I am tasting a younger whiskey because I do think the barrel plays a, a major role in this. Now, We've gotten recently because to, to try some samples with uh, different varietals of corn in them with mm-hmm. the same kind of same different, same mash bill, but different varietals of corn. And it really does get to show like, I, yeah, I was going from white corn, you know, just instead of, you know, your typical grain corn or sweet. At corn. the very beginning, I was like, oh, corn, it's all bullshit. It's all corn. But no, I guess, the, I guess they're actually right. Like it actually does have some sort of effect into it. Yeah. yeah. You could taste the difference in rise. I mean, 
And it's also, it's not just the grains too. It's like the fermentation technique. It's the yeast they use. It's the distillation technique. It's the barrel entry proof. And so like some of the, you know, some of the back end things that no one sees is is something unique, like what Wilderness Trail and Peerless is doing in sweet mashing. You know, by by not doing a sour mash like everybody else, it's a huge risk for them to do, but they're coming out with different technique. And I do believe you taste it in the whiskey for sure. And um it, it there there's so many cool things that a young whiskey can do to your palate. And there's so many ways that the distillers can get it there, but it really does come down to skill. If you're new at the game, unless you're a savant, your two-year-old whiskey's not going to taste good. I support you. I, I hope you do well. I hope that you keep learning and all that. But most of the time, a two-year-old is not going to do well. If you got some skills, if you got something new to the game, you know, you've got some technique that you, you know, you've mastered, uh, you've got a different recipe and all that. Your two-year-old's got a shot, you know. I mean, it's not going—it's not going to beat uh, a rare breed in a tasting, but it's going to be palatable. It's going to get me excited to, you know, see where you're going. But it—it, it, you know, that first bottle that comes out, like I remember tasting Bluegrass Distillers' uh, first bottling. I—I I tasted it and I said, you know what? I'm buying Evan Williams Black Label over this one every day of the week. But I like where you're going. Like I—I I can taste—I can taste where you're going. And you're seeing what they're doing, and they've they've continued to evolve. You know, so that's one of the it's like a brand I can think of that's like that. Uh, my favorite story to tell you about, like a brand that that has evolved, is 291. I tasted 291 at a Bourbon Crusaders event. Looked Michael Myers straight in the eye. I was like, "This is awful, man." <laughs> and talk about like the, uh, the ultimate teardown right there. Well, I, Fred Minnick on there, and, and he was like. What can I do to make it better? I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not a fucking distiller. I just, I just know it's not any good. And I've tasted his releases uh, time and time again. And he's doing Aspen Stay finishes. And it's like, and it's like he's, I don't want to say he's perfected it. I think he's probably got some more room to, for improvement. But I'll be damned if those don't think those things don't taste fantastic. And I, you know, and I and I send them to people, and they taste something like, wow, that's really good. So I think there is there's a lot of things that small distillers can do to compensate for that for that young age, and um, and it comes down to the hustle and figuring it out. So how do you fight a stigma when because we we talked we talked about this with Michael Myers? You know, we asked him, and he was opening and launching in Kentucky. Like, how do you think your your Colorado bourbon is going to do in Kentucky? And and I think it's tough. Kentucky's a tough market. Let's put it that way. Like they're sure we were knuckleheads at first too, and we were like, "Oh, we're Kentucky boys. That's all we're going to drink, so on and so forth." So, so how do you fight a stigma of, you know, not being a Kentucky bourbon? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon, and that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. 
shopify.com slash bourbon. So, so how do you fight a stigma of, you know, not being a Kentucky bourbon? And then B, how do you fight a stigma when you have people that say like, oh, I'm not drinking anything unless it's over six years old? Yeah, I mean, you just somehow got to get it in the hands of people that are willing to try it and educate them on it. That's the only way. I mean, you know, we'd never, we are big fans of Woodenville. We're big fans of Finger Lakes. We're big fans of uh, 291, whoever, you know, but we would never have known them unless they sent us something and we tried it and, and educate us about it. You know, I, we've always joked if Woodenville and we're in Kentucky, they'd be bigger than Willett, you know, they just, but because they're in Washington, people won't give them the time of day here. Uh, yeah. and so it's, it's tough because, you know, the bourbon brands, you know, as smart as they were, when there was a whiskey glut, they were like eight to 12 years, you know, age stated, gotta be that. And then, you know, popular and like, well, age doesn't matter, but it's going to matter back again when our stocks are back. But they, cr- they created that, you know, mental image of it's gotta be, you know, six to 12 years old to be good and be quality and be made in Kentucky. You know, people all the time, I'll say we bought barrels of bourbon, you know, in Washington or wherever. And they're like, wait a minute, it can't be bur- it can be bourbon outside of, and you're like, yes, it can. It just, just has to be made in America, you know, 50 more percent corn. Um, you know, you, you all know the spiel, but, um, tell us, right. I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Show my, my, whatever idiocracy, but, um, yeah, it's just, you gotta have people on the floor. You gotta get people in liquor stores, you know, say, Hey, come try our stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you just gotta get people to taste it. Cause once they taste it, you know, we have this experience, like when we taste something that's young and new, it's very exciting because you're like, it's tough to, you know, with the, the big brands. You know, it's tough to get access to them. You don't get the intimate kind of conversation. But when you taste something that's new and young, it's so exciting because you can reach out to them and the master still or the owners emailing you back and they're like, wow, thank you for reaching out, you know, this and that. And then it just creates this fun relationship and you can start to grow with them. And it's, I don't know, it's just a unique kind of feel when, but it is tough because a lot of them are not very good. <laughs> but the ones we do find, it's it creates like this excitement around it. Yeah, and and again, it's part of like the evolution and the growth and the excitement of seeing uh, the industry grow and everything. And you know, Kenny, you asked the question of like how you get over that stigma, and I I just I I have seen um I, I think the best brand I have ever seen overcome a stigma was probably Michter's. Michter's for a long time had to and people today probably don't even realize it but like how uh loyal the fan base of the pennsylvania mictors was and to see and they got and they get a little bit today too but they got so much crap uh from from people when they moved to kentucky and the, and the brand was out and you know there were writers who wouldn't write about them um, you know, when social media came out and blogs came out, there. I remember constantly... they moved here. I was like, "What is this coming in our town?" It's <laughs> Mictor stuff, claiming to be KY bourbon. <laughs> As he looked in the sun, <laughs> um, but you know, they they overcome that. And I, I and mean, I had Joe Mayoko on a panel, and I asked him how he did it. And he said, "I only focus on the positive," and that that quote stuck out with me to the point where I printed it out and I and I like hung it in my in my office and uh, and it's like if you only if you are a new brand and you only focus on the positive and you ignore the assholes like me who might give it a <laughs> negative review and you just focus on those who like it that's winning because you take a look at a brand like Hudson it did not win a lot of positive reviews from whiskey critics. Um, but, you know, it's one of the best-selling bourbons in New York. Got to own your backyard. Exactly. So, I mean, I think there is a, I think there is a formula for overcoming the stigma, but it, it, it can't be easy. It can't be easy. I wouldn't want to do it. So let's put this one out here. I think there's a brand, a very well, highly known brand based here in Kentucky that gets away with putting out four to six year whiskey, which is basically what most craft is anyway. Maker's Mark. But people go crazy for. No. Old Forester. People, uh, when you think of Old Forester Barrel Proof, you think of everything that they're doing, 
it's relatively young on paper. That's nothing. Nothing's age dated. They don't. Yeah. They don't age date it yeah. for a reason. But it's good whiskey and it's young. And mm-hmm. for some reason, it always gets a pass because it's good. And yeah. you know that whiskey don't lie. And that's the thing. If it's a good product, you know, it's going to sell. But a lot of people, because it's younger, won't try it. And Old Foe has a long history and a lo- loyal following, you know, from here locally anyways. But uh, uh, if it's good, it'll sell, but you just got to, but yeah, you make a great point. It's four to six years and but they nobody also, thinks about that. They don't like, hang their hat on that. They also don't have, they don't talk about age um, in like, you know, they don't have the age statement on there. Maker's Mark is another one. That, and they say, we, we bottle the taste. You know, they've got, you know, the brands that, do that bottle to taste and focus on that. Don't talk about the age. You know, they kind of they kind of sneak in under the radar a little bit. And I guarantee you, there's some, there's probably some four-year-old stuff that's out there um that we just uh that we don't really think about. Like I love New Riff. Like New Riff is four years old. You know, most of the new riff is four years old. You know, so we just don't, we just don't know. Uh, you, you just don't know until you taste it. And if you if you if you base everything on an age and that is your that is that is your position in whiskey I look I'd love to have age statements on everything but you can't let that be the end all be all for uh for your adventure so don't don't dismiss a bourbon just because it's young cuz it may be pretty damn good yeah and it's it is hard to fight that you talked about thing before like price aside price aside but it always plays a role. It always plays a factor into mm-hmm. the decision maker, which is going to be the average consumer. And they're like, God, do I really want to spend $65, $75, $85 on a bottle and get burned by something that I've never either had before? Or whether you're listening to this podcast or you're listening to anybody else out there that says like, no, it's good. You should go do it. But they, they still have their reservations because it's a it's a seventy eighty dollar bottle, and you're paying for something that's two, three, four years old. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's a that's a hard one to to kind of tackle. And maybe with the new, you know, TTB allowing different bottle sizes, um, you know, approval that we're playing to craft distillers' hands, where they can let you sample, you know, much more lower cost of entry for a consumer to try their products, and you know, where you can get a whatever a three hundred ml or what's the new. Yeah. Set. I know you can do 700, but uh, there's 500. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few. And so maybe that's, you know, we've talked about that before where maybe someone only spends 35 or 40 bucks. They're more willing to, you know, go on that ride with you versus, you know, 65, 75, 85. Yeah, it, it, it is a, it it is an interesting uh, dilemma when it comes to pricing. And I think sometimes too, it's like, it's bad business uh, by the distillers, the smaller distillers to push that price out there. And we we saw a lot of the seventy to ninety dollar bottles initially. Oh, definitely Peerless, uh, Garrison Brothers came out very expensive. But when we saw the some of the turmoil they took, even though their whiskey was well rated uh, and appreciated, you know people would see the turmoil. And now you're seeing craft whiskey be forty bucks. Uh, you're not you're not in and forty bucks is is that kind of price points like. Mm, am I buying it? Maybe, maybe not, but I'm not complaining about it, you know? And I, and I think, I think what we, there has definitely been a trend of the smaller distillers with the young whiskey come out, uh, below the $40 price point because, um, you know, poor peerless, that's, that's the only question they, they fielded for their first two years. It was like, why is it 90 bucks? Why is it 90 bucks? Why is it 90 bucks? And you know, they're- Because the glass is 98 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they just they they didn't shoot themselves in the foot. They had the confidence. They they pushed forward with the confidence. They're fine. They're fine. Garrison Brothers, uh, same story. They've got you know the pool of Texas, and they're fine. But um, you know other brands may not have that. And so like you you've seen you've seen people take less on margins not factor in. One of the things that I learned very early on in my career is when I was interviewing Stephen Thompson, the president of Brown Foreman at the time, uh, he said that you cannot put put the cost of your still and your facilities and the price of your bottle. He's like, if you do that, you will lose every time. And so one of the one of the tried and true methods of, of pricing is just to go in the store and see what bottle you want to be by and price it that way. And and that's that's the that's where I think people are going back to, 
and people want to be next to Maker's Mark, and they want to be next to Woodford Reserve. Yep. It's true. And Bullet. A lot yep. of people, because Bullet sells a ton too. And Bullet is crazy. <laughs> and speaking of young whiskey, but good God, they just but took when you, off. When you, think of, when you think of Bullet, when you think of stuff like that, sometimes it's a race to the bottom. Right. right. And I don't know if if you want to be there next to the $20, $30, $40 price point. That's good. It's an everyday value bourbon. But if you're a craft whiskey, do you want to be an everyday value bourbon or do you want to be somebody's like mid-tier? Right. And yeah. I think that's where the the play is for a lot of them because they are not going to have the the stocks that are capable of being able to produce a a value bourbon. Right. I, just, I just don't see it happening. Yeah. I mean, I think... For for me personally, if somewhere in the fifty to seventy five dollar range, if it's a good four year craft whiskey that I'm excited about, I think that's probably a good price range that I'm willing to to spend on. But it's got to be something that I've tried and you know have had and liked and enjoyed. Um, because you know when you're a bourbon geek and you've tasted all this stuff, you get palate fatigue on you know a lot of you know these older bourbons and if something's interesting and unique i'm willing to pay a little bit more mm. to have that and you know when my buddies come over and be like you got to try this this is something different some unique you know that that and I'm, I'm willing to pay for that because it creates kind of a new experience for me and it's funny we say this because we're like let's try these younger whiskeys that taste like older whiskeys <laughs> we're like oh they, they fooled us i mean <laughs> that's right <laughs> Now, the other thing, Fred, that you brought up, and I think it's it's very important when we look at the craft market in general, is is packaging. How much does packaging, should it really play into a craft whiskey when they are trying to come to the market? I mean, we look at things like, um, you know, Frey Ranch. Uh, we've got Peerless. And there's, these are big bottles with big packaging. Like, they're winning awards based on packaging. Now, thankfully, they also have the whiskey to back it up. But that doesn't always happen. Right. And so it's like, which way do you go? Like, it's very, very rare that you hit, you hit a home run and you have kind of like, you know, you hit both of these, you got great whiskey with great packaging, but it's either like you, do you have great whiskey and you sacrifice in the packaging a little bit and you get some, you know, off the shelf bottles, whatever you can find, or do you go the whole custom route and really try to sell the packaging, even though your whiskey might not be up to par. Uh, what it's it, it, a couple of things like are it, what's the, in, goal here is the goal to like get consumers initially or yeah, yeah. yeah like okay. what, what do you think's gonna sell like what do you what's gonna sell like do you, as a as a craft whiskey and you're thinking like okay well i think our whiskey's pretty good and we spend a lot of money you know basically making the whiskey and all this other kind of stuff like we've just got to get out there to market or we say like you know we're pretty good but eh, we're not the best out there but if we make some flashy packaging we're gonna we're gonna sell some bottles yeah one of the one of the oh, one one uh, one brand comes to mind um, that came out with flashy packaging and had young whiskey. It was Bella, uh, Bell Floor. Um, it had the Stanley Cup on it, and it had like this uh, kind of real rigid, like the fifteen year old I W Harper uh, bottling. And I think it was, I think it was a two hundred dollar bottle. And I and I and I tasted it. it was it was good. But I was like, man, it ain't two hundred dollars good. So I think when you when you get that when you when you push the packaging into the price and it's getting north of that $75 price point you're comfortable with, Ryan, I think that's the pro that's where the problems lie. If you can have that nice packaging, and here's the thing, the packaging doesn't always have to be about the glass. It can just be the label. But I would say, I would say the most important thing for a new distiller and their packaging, that the bottle can't be too tall and it can't be too fat. Because when it's too fat and too tall, it's 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 not doing the job on the shelf, and the retailer will dismiss it because it's going to take up too much space. And uh, the bartenders, the bartenders they, will they not want to be exactly. something easy to grab, you know. So, so, and that's why the bullet the bullet brand has is is so popular with bartenders. It's got it's got an easy grip to it. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, I think it's all about the product, the whiskey. You know, it's you go to a, any liquor store now and you go to the bourbon section and it's overwhelming how many there are. And so, yes, maybe packaging stands out, but to me, I'm always, maybe because I'm so in deep into this industry that I'm always hesitant about good packaging. But, uh, to me, I have to hear about you from somewhere to, to go and mm. pull you off the shelf because there's so many options now and so many fanciful packages. Right. Um, if there's something good about it, somebody's going to talk about it. And you're going to hear about it through other people. That's the route I would go. But you can't look like 
you know, piss poor either. <laughs> <laughs> like there was a brand with like a donkey on it for a long uh, uh, ass. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah I know. What you're big talking ass about. bourbon. Yeah, yeah, that was like to me. I was like every time I saw that, I was like, this is the worst bottle <laughs> ever. And you know, the whiskey was never bad, but the it was it, it was fine. But it was like the bottle was just like who was feeling the the energy to buy that and it, it just so packaging you know it, it's funny like we all say and i agree with you i i care about the whiskey but when we're really breaking down uh something and why a bottle doesn't move we always go to the packaging we all need better packaging and you know one of the best cases in point of it working is bakers you know bakers change their packaging and suddenly everybody wanted it but um with the young whiskey man I don't, I don't know. I think the fr- the 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 Frey Ranch bottle is perfect. Minus minus the I'd like to have a real cork in there. I know it's synthetic cork, but I think that's a the perfect perfect effort of uh I think that's the perfect package and the whiskey uh matches the package for the most yeah. part. And like I said, it's very rare to kind of have a a home run and hit both of those out of the park, but yeah. uh, they definitely did. So the good thing is, guys, is that we are still on the very edge and the cusp of this and there's going to be a lot more craft whiskey, a lot more bourbon to come for a lot of years. So we're going to- Well, I'm just looking for more more uh, United from uh, Pursuit. <laughs> it's so, coming. So are we. Yeah. So it'll come. It'll when, come. When, can I, when can I expect a, a crystal decanter uh, with the backstory? Well, we're now that Ryan's blending, we're actually going to start on glass blowing next. So every-, every yep. <laughs> We're going down to, we're going to Glassworks. And we're going to, so Ryan's going to start, yeah, he's going to blow every decanter for us while sure we're you at wear it. goggles, buddy. That's right. <laughs> Come tell me which color you want. <laughs> All right, guys. Fantastic uh, discussion talking about really where does craft whiskey fit into this? Where does young whiskey fit into Not just craft, but where does young mm-hmm. whiskey fit into mm-hmm. this? Because there is a lot of good young whiskey out there and there's a lot of young whiskey that's going to fool you for older whiskey. So make sure you take your blinders off and do some blind samples while you're at it. Give it a shot. Yep. With that, cheers, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you follow us on all the socials. Make sure you follow Fred Minnick and also support his podcast, The Fred Minnick Show. Cheers, everybody, and we'll see you all next week. Toodles. Vodka sucks. <laughs> <laughs>